So down at your feet, in front of you there is a Bible if you don't have one. Today we're on page 469, if that helps you out. Page 469, we're going to be in Psalm 42. Psalm 42 and 43, 469. If you don't have a Bible, uh, please take that with you as a gift from us. We'd love for you to have that. Hopefully read it, take it home, or if you've got a device, uh, you can turn that on. If you know those devices, um, there's some apps that'll read scripture to you. It's a great way to start the morning. If you're not a good disciplined person, you know you got to take a shower, well, listen to it. I'll bring the phone in the shower, but you can listen to it and just kind of let the rhythm of God's word begin to speak into your life. And so Psalm 42, and as we've done throughout this series, uh, the Psalms were intended to be sung. And so we're trying to add some musical connection to some maybe songs of your past, songs that may have resonated during periods of your life where you remember that summer and you can smell the, the smells, you remember the sights, the sounds, the friends. And, and today as we go through Psalm 42, we're going to bring in one of those songs that may, may capture some of those memories. So let's, let's get into God's Word together, Psalm 42. Psalm 42, as the deer pants for flowing streams, so my soul pants for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night, while they say to me all day long, where is your God? These things I remember as I pour out my soul. How I'd go with a throng and lead them in procession to the house of God. With glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude-keeping festival. Why are you so downcast, O my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise Him, my salvation and my God. My soul is cast down within me, therefore I remember you from the land of Jordan and from Hermon and from Mount Mizar. Deep calls to deep at the roar of your waterfalls. All your breakers and your waves, they have gone over me. By day the Lord commands his steadfast love. At night his song is with me, a prayer to the God of my life. 
I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go on mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? As with a deadly wound in my bones, my adversaries, they taunt me. While they say to me all day long, where is your God? Why? Why are you downcast, O my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God. I'll again praise him, my salvation and my God. Vindicate me, O God, and defend my cause against ungodly people. From the deceitful and unjust man, deliver me. For you're the God in whom I take refuge. Why have you rejected me? Why do I go about mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? Send out your light and your truth. Let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy hill and to your dwelling. See, then I'll go to the altar of God, to God my exceeding joy, and I will praise you with the lyre, O God, my God. Why, why are you downcast, O my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God. I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. I believe the kingdom comes, all the colors lead into Let's pray. Father, I thank you that you know the desperation of the soul. Father, you understand when the heart and the mind are in darkness. And Father, we cry out to you, and yet, for whatever reason, you can't be found. And we find that within the soul, within the heart, there's a despair. Something we can't shake. We believe in you, and yet we chase after the things of the world. We say, God, you're good, and yet we go after the goodness that we find in the things of this world, the desires of the flesh, the lust of the eyes. Father, I pray this morning that as, as we dive into your word and the complexity of life, sometimes there aren't simple answers. There isn't just a pragmatic one-two step of what we need to do, but instead, as the psalmist does, there's a time in which we need to pour out our soul to you. To ask, Father, that your presence would meet us here. You'd open our eyes and enable us to evaluate the hope that we've set our hearts upon. So that as we leave this place today, Father, we might know what it truly means to follow you, to love you, and to pursue you. And so, Father, guide, guide us as we study your word, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.
Got any Bono fans in here? All right. If you have, there you go. If you have not gone onto YouTube or whatever it is, the vice you go onto, Bono has a series on the Psalms. Can you believe that? With a guy named Eugene Peterson who wrote the message, translated the message. It's about a 30-minute segment there. Uh, a great thing if you like kind of cultural stuff that relates to Christianity. Uh, his love for the Psalms and desire and see how, uh, really how God connected with him through reading the Psalms. So uh, check that out. Because that song says, you know, I believe, and yet here's what I find happening in my life. I still haven't found what I'm looking for. I believe, and how many of us have this story? I mean, I believe in Jesus, but yeah, I'm pursuing all these other things. I mean, I believe in Jesus, and yet I'm following the lust of my flesh. And yet I'm not living for God and, and using my skills and my talents in a way that says Jesus is the center. I believe in him, but I'm still living as if I haven't found what I'm looking for. I think we can be honest that there is a restlessness in the human soul. And even on a spiritual plane and a spiritual level, that on the one hand we've known, followed, experienced God. And yet there's times where God isn't enough. I know that's surprising to hear in church, right? God's always enough. you got to believe that. But existentially, experientially, there are moments where we're hopeless, and yet we turn to God, and God's not there. God's distant. And see, this Psalm, Psalm 42, is describing the despair of a soul that's searching for God, and yet God can't be found. And here's why that's so important. If you don't know that's a part of the spiritual process of growth, if you don't know there's going to be times where you haven't done anything wrong and yet you're absolutely depressed in despair and discouragement, and then you go to the things that worked in the past, right, to the songs, you listen to the songs, you maybe read certain chapters, you go to certain books, and there's nothing. The heart is cold. You cry out to God, but all you hear is silence. See, that's a part of of growth in the Christian life. And sometimes there's nothing you've done to cause it. As we jump into this psalm in Psalm 42, that's what he's experiencing. It's a dark night of the soul. It could be something that happens for a day, for an hour, or for years. I've followed God. I've, I've passionately pursued him. But for whatever reason in this moment in life, I can't seem to connect to him. Have you been there? Have you found yourself in a place of discouragement? See, sometimes I've had friends in the past that have run into these experiences, and because they weren't prepared, nobody told them. They assumed it must not be real. I think the psalmist could easily have gone there. Hey, maybe that decision to follow Jesus, to pray that prayer, to, to live that life, maybe that was just a dream. And some of us have had these moments in the past where God was so tangible, so real, so alive, and, and our faith was living and active, and now we're sitting here today, and if we were honest, we'd say that spiritual life is dead. Not dead in that we don't believe, because obviously we're here, but it's not that vitality we once had. And what the psalmist is going to show us is how we respond in those moments really will, will, will direct the way that our relationship with God works out in the future, that we have to know how to respond 
in those times of darkness. You ready for this? It's a little deep. But we're going to look at the condition. We're going to look at the cause. And then finally, what are the solutions? So let's, let's look at the condition. And he begins with this illustration. So look at it in verse 1. And maybe you've seen this on a t-shirt, embroidered on a pillow, as the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul pants for you, O God. That's the NIV, but the ESV says, as the deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? I love that he begins with a story, begins with a, a picture, and he describes a deer that's dying of thirst. Because, see, deer are not stupid. They know where water is. They know how to find water. And, and the water he describes is actually called flowing water, which means it's a spring, it's a stream of water. It's the kind of water that you find in the driest of seasons. And so here is a deer that's not just looking for a pool of water. Rather, this deer is going to a source of water that's expected to be found in the driest seasons of life. He goes to the water, goes to this source, and to his surprise, no water is found. This is the last resort. No place else to go. He's in a place of desperation, and when he gets to that oasis that he hoped to be, a place of relief and peace and joy, what he found is despair. And see, the psalmist is using that to say, we are the deer, God is the water. And there are times where we are desperately thirsty for God, and then we get there, and he can't be found. We thirst and yet there's no presence, no joy, no scripture, no song, no church service, not how good the pastor is, nothing that can move our heart to experience and encounter him because from our vantage point, God isn't there. Which tells us something. See, I, think, I think the Bible is trying to instruct us that on the one hand, we need God as much as animals need water. And that we are constantly, this is our condition. Now, we don't feel this. I think we don't feel this because we're not desperate. And we don't realize that spiritually, really, we live on this, this plane of desperation day by day. Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those that know their spiritual condition, for they shall see God. And the psalmist is saying, I'm thirsting for God. I'm hungry for God, and yet when I go to God, when I sang the song, when I read the Bible, I got nothing. And this didn't happen once, but over and over. I went to church, pastor gave me nothing. Nothing to enliven my faith. Nothing seems to work. How do you respond when you go to God and God isn't there? And everything seems to lead to desperation. And the worst part is the more you try, the more hopeless you become. How do you respond when the soul is at that kind of depth? Well, if you notice, actually, in the introduction, right before verse 1, it says, For the choir master, a masculine of the sons of Korah. Now, that's important. Normally, I wouldn't go to a, a line like that, but the sons of Korah, were, these were worship leaders. In the Old Testament, they were the priests, which means they were skilled in the art of leading people into God's presence. 
They knew how to use song, word, silence, prayer, scripture to draw people to God. And that word maskal in the Hebrew, uh, it has this idea of to teach or to instruct. And so this psalm was given to us by a worship leader to instruct us when our soul is dry. And when we find ourselves in moments where nothing seems to change my spiritual condition and I'm at a place of hopelessness. And yet look at verse 2. He describes what that condition is like and he says, My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? In some ways he's asking God, when will you come and make yourself known to me? I'm crying out and yet... You're not here. That's a place of despair. And see, what I've found is, is for many Christians, when they find themselves in that kind of condition, they don't tell anyone. Because I don't want you to think I'm a bad Christian. You with me? I don't want you to think that I don't have that kind of vibrant relationship with God. But here's something that's so important and encouraging to me. This isn't a new believer. This is a worship leader. You with me? This guy has had some fantastic times in God's presence. He's seen God heal. He's seen God speak. He's seen God move. He has seen the glory and the goodness of God, and yet he's not describing what others are experiencing. He's saying, this is my experience. You know, Moses experienced that. Point in Moses' life where he says to God, God, take my life. Can't handle it. Now, he didn't take his own life. He knew his life wasn't his to take. But he says to God, God, I'm in despair. Would you just wipe me out? Would you take me off the face of the earth? Things would be a lot better. Moses found himself in a place of deep desperation. Not only Moses, let's go through the list of heroes. How about Elijah? Elijah, you know, builds this altar. Fire comes down from heaven. That's a good worship service, right? I mean, that's what? people taunting him, and, and God showed up in a, a powerful way. And yet after that, if you'll read in Psalm, in Psalm, 1 Kings 19, just like Moses, Elijah says to God, God, take my life. Wipe me out. Life isn't worth living anymore. After he has this encounter with God, and yet Jonah, Jonah chapter 4, Jonah said the exact same thing. God, I'm in a place of despair. I don't see your grace. I don't see love. I don't see the patience of God. I don't see the goodness of God. All I hear from others is, where's your God? Your faith is useless. And Jonah says, God, take my life. See, these are not immature believers. These, these are the heroes of the faith. And yet they find themselves in a place where they're hopeless and they turn to God and God is not there. See, that's the condition of the soul. That's what the psalmist is describing. Now, the question is, how did he get there? And see, this is where we got to put on the brakes because, see, within the church, we like to blame someone. Someone's at fault. We're in a very pragmatic society, a very moralistic society that says if there's a condition spiritually that's wrong, it's because you messed up. Are you with me on that? And you'll hear people say that, hey, if God is distant, maybe you need to confess. Maybe you messed something up. You must not be pleading for the blood of Christ. You must not be doing it right, because if you were doing it right, this wouldn't happen. 
Well, unfortunately, that doesn't apply here because there's no confession of sin. read, Read the entire passage. He's not confessing that he's done anything wrong. He's not convicted by guilt or sin. And sometimes in the Bible, you'll find that, that God is distant because sin is present. And sometimes God is distant because of suffering, that we've all been in those moments where something terrible has happened. And in those moments where that terror and suffering comes, we feel that God is distant because we can't connect who God is with what's happening in my life. Well, that's not what's going on. Though he addresses some enemies, there's no physical attack, no no fear of death. And so what are the causes? Well, the first one I find incredibly helpful. You'll see it down in verse 3. In verse 3, he says, My tears have been my food day and night while they say to me all day long, Where is your God? By saying, my tears have been my food day and night, it's a rhetorical way of saying, I'm not sleeping and I'm not eating. The only comfort I have are my own tears. What he's describing is a physical condition. Now, one person who's been incredibly helpful for me, because I like to just go to the spiritual. I like to think as a pastor, you know, that's the only thing you need to do. One prayer a day will keep the devil away. You got that verse? Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones died in the early 80s, was a physician for most of his life, became a pastor, went into ministry. And when he read this passage, what he saw was something different than someone like I would see. If you're in the medical profession and you hear about someone who cannot eat, who cannot sleep, and who is hopeless, you would call that depression. Not only depression, you'd see the signs of clinical depression that what he's describing here is a physical component, that this hopelessness, this despair, this this lack of encountering God has manifest in physical ways. If you go to 1 Kings 19 that we mentioned about Elijah, Elijah has this encounter with God, and then he's in despair, and he says, God, take my life. And what does God do? Go read 1 Kings 19, great passage. An angel shows up. You know what the angel does? Puts him to sleep. Sometimes the most spiritual thing you can do is take a nap. Sometimes the most godly thing you can do is to eat. That's what Elijah does. He's at a place of physical desperation. He's broken. He's weary. The angel causes him to sleep, and then he gets up and he eats, and his situation begins to change that there are physical causes to the way that we feel. And the Bible's incredibly nuanced. It doesn't say there's just one solution. Now, the physical tends to influence the spiritual, and the spiritual tends to influence the physical. We're not dividing the two. Because I think often in the church, we just automatically go to the spiritual. And I I think that's a a good way of thinking. However, when you disconnect that from the way that you're daily living your life, you're really not being honest with yourself. That God has created us as physical beings to rest. And so part of the cause that that he's expressing is is a physical cause, but more than that, if you look down in verse 3, he describes the situation. And he says, these things I'm remembering as I'm pouring out my soul. And he says, how I would go with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude-keeping festival. 
Wouldn't it be great if on Sunday morning a multitude-keeping festival broke out? You know what he's describing? He's describing a worship experience. And, and notice he says, I used to lead the procession. See, see worship, and this is insightful, didn't happen when people got in the building. Hey, if you're looking for us to get you from zero to 100, we can't get you there. Stephen's good, but he's not that good. Are you with me? What they would do is they would prepare themselves. As they would come to the temple, as they would come to worship, they were preparing their hearts to encounter God and anticipate God's presence when they got there. And the psalmist is saying, I remember how he used to be at the front of the procession. Everybody festive behind me, excited about gathering as the church to worship him. But notice now in verse 6, for some reason he's he's no longer in that place in Jerusalem, but he describes... And says in verse 6, my soul is cast down within me. Therefore, I remember you from the land of Jordan and of Hermon, from Mount Mizar. Now, this is a region to the north of Jerusalem. That for whatever reason, he's been taken from a community that made sense. A community that inspired his faith. A community where God was real, and now he's in Evergreen. He's in Denver. He's in Atlanta. He's had to move. And with the loss of relationship, the loss of fellowship, has come the loss of God's presence. Have you had that? Had a church? Some great encounters, great experiences, and you're trying to find it again. When I was in college, I was surrounded by some spiritual giants. I had no idea they were going to become spiritual giants. They were like 18-year-olds, right? You know, you look at an 18-year-old, you don't think they're going to do anything. At least I didn't. A lot of my friends, I didn't know they are going to be doctors and lawyers and do stuff. I thought they were just friends. But some of the guys I was around, guys like Louis Giglio, you may have heard that name, the Passion Ministry. He was leading a Bible study at Baylor University, Waco, Texas, in 1994. And I was a part of that study. No idea he was going to go on to do these great things. We started a church in 1995 with a guy named David Crowder, the David Crowder Band. Some of you have heard that name. I hear some responses. David was just a guy from Texarkana, just a hick boy that could play the guitar. See, I didn't know that these guys would go on to do great things. I was also involved in Young Life. I was involved in, at that time, it was called Campus Crusade for Christ, and I had people investing into my life. And their faith inspired me. The fact that they wanted to make sacrifices for God, that they wanted to start a church. In 1995, we started a church called University Baptist. It was the first Gen X church. Gen X has kind of gone by the wayside, but it, it was a great, exciting time. And then I went to seminary. You know, you would think I'm just going up the ladder, right? You know, have these great times in college, spiritual connections, doing great things, leading ministries. Then I go to college and, I mean, go to seminary. It all died. None of the friends were around. I was living off campus, and my faith became very intellectual. It was no longer about connecting with God, seeing God do things in the lives of others. It was about arguing doctrine and theology, conversations around the lunch table, which were interesting, but it wasn't about seeking God. And I found that in seminary, my faith began to die. And see, I wasn't insightful at the time to realize what was happening. It took years later as I looked back and said, you know, what was that about? And what I realized is at that point in, in my life at 18, 19, 20, 
my, my faith was really secondhand. I hadn't owned it. I was living through the stories of others. I was loving what we were doing, starting a church, right? Hanging out with David Crowder, going to these Bibles. I, I loved the fellowship. I loved the people. I loved the excitement. But see, I wasn't transitioning, causing my faith to be my own and asking God, God, how are you guiding me? Not how are you leading them? And not what you're going to do in their life because they took off. But God, what do you want to do in my life? And see, I found later on that this great community, this great church, this great experience was something I was trying to reproduce the rest of my life instead of going to the one that made it possible. See, sometimes what happens is when we lose fellowship, we lose those experiences, we haven't lost anything because what we should be pursuing is God. And yet how often when those experiences pass do we not reconnect with the one who made it possible? It wasn't about being at that time. It was about the fact that God was at work. And so likewise, I think all of us can find ourselves in those places. And maybe that's where you are today. And what tends to happen, sadly, is we give up. You with me? It's never going to happen again. That's what he's saying. Why so downcast? It's never going to happen again. You're never going to find it again. Why so downcast, oh my soul? I'd be downcast if I never thought I'd find it again. But see, what they needed to find was not the community. What you're searching for is God. There's a loss of community. And the final thing is there's a disillusionment with life. If you notice throughout this passage, you'll see it, I think, in verse 3, down in verse 11, There's some accusations that are coming. They're coming from his enemies, and yet you find they're also coming from himself. In verse 3, he says, My tears have been my food day and night. So here he is crying. He can't sleep, and yet the people around him are saying, Where is your God? Not my God. Hey, where's your God? How's that working out for you? And then notice in verse 9, He takes that accusation, and now that accusation's not coming from the world around him, from his enemies. He's now starting to say it himself. I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go on mourning because of the oppression of my enemies? As with a deadly wound in my bones, my adversaries taunt me while they say to me all day long, where is your God? God, you have forgotten. I think what you could describe here is he's listening to his own heart. He's following his own emotions. And he's saying, you know what? Maybe they're all right. Maybe the world is right. This God thing, it it doesn't work. It's not worth it. And notice it says, your God, which means there's a contrast here. God should be good, but I'm not experiencing his goodness. God should be with me, but I'm not experiencing his presence. See, there's actually an experience that's going on. It's not just a theological question. Rather, he's saying, God, this is who you're supposed to be. This is who you said you would be, and yet you're not being that. And the accusations of others begins to become a meditation on the heart. And he starts to repeat, she starts to repeat exactly what everyone's saying, and that's becoming the song in the heart. 
Have you been in those places where others begin to question your faith, maybe to destroy and to tear down your faith, and you just continue to replay that record, that CD, that MP4, MP3, whatever it is. And it affects you. It affects you physically. It affects you spiritually. It affects you relationally. See, what he's describing is the accusation of others. He's disillusioned with life. God, maybe you aren't there. Maybe you didn't exist. Maybe that didn't happen. This is, see, this is the depths of despair. And I think it's important as we look at it to say, I could find myself there. If you don't think it can happen to you when it does, it's even more devastating. You with me? You know, one of my uh, premarital counselors said to me, Jason, there's going to be a day, my wife knows this is true, you know, where, where you marry someone and you look at me and say, why did I marry you? Right? You're like, I know my wife's thought that about, no, maybe, no. Don't want to go there. <laughs> Have you been to that place, you, you, right? He, he said to me, he said, I'm not telling you this to destroy your idealism. You get married, you know, you're like, that's going to be great. You have this, this attitude, oh, I can't wait till we get married. Then we're going to buy a house and we're going to have kids and it's going to be perfect. Kids are going to come out perfect. Life is going to be perfect. All of it's going to be good. You have this idealistic approach. And he said to me, and I remember thinking, this is a strange thing to say before you're going to get married. There's going to be a day where you're going to look and say, what did I do? You know, when that question actually came, it helped. You see, otherwise I would have gone, oh my gosh, I've got to end this. Or she would have said, oh my gosh, I've got to end this. See, that's a part of the experience. It's a part of growth. It's not, the bad thing isn't that those thoughts come. The bad thing is when we don't do anything about it. And so what's going to happen? What's the response? If there's a physical cause, a lack of fellowship, and then finally leading to a disillusionment in life, what is the solution? So let's jump in. How does he respond? And so look at verse 4. And he says in verse 4, these things I remember as I pour out my soul. What is Psalm 42 and Psalm 43? See, Psalm 42 and Psalm 43 are the prayer of a hopeless man that is deeply beautiful, deeply theologically, deeply passionate, deeply focused on God, and yet he's not experiencing God. What you see is desperation that will not give up on God. Now, often we're thinking about God not giving up on us. But see, he so believes that God is what he needs and that God is the only thing that could meet that need that he is so desperate for God that he will not give up on God. And he's crying out. See, what do you do when Bible reading doesn't work? When the song that you love doesn't work? When coming to church doesn't work? work. See, growth in the Christian life happens in those moments of despair. How do we respond? The psalmist says, I'm going to cry out to God. Because even though I still haven't found what I'm looking for, I know that the greatest hope I'm going to find is in God. And the greatest satisfaction for my soul is in God. I'm not going to let this thing go. And he continues to pursue and to chase after God because, see, he knows deep down only God can satisfy. And in some ways, hey, think of this, Maybe that's why he's in this condition. See, maybe one of the reasons he's in this condition is because only God can satisfy and he doesn't have enough of God. The Apostle Paul was like that. Paul said to live is Christ and get this, to die is gain. I don't think of life that way. 
I don't want to die. But see, what Paul's saying is to live is to live for Christ. To die is to gain Christ. All of it's Christ. You know, Paul's question in life wasn't, is this right and is this wrong? We live in such a moralistic mindset. You know what he said? Will this give me more of Jesus? Or will this cause me to lose Jesus? He said, I want to know Christ. That's the question he asked in life. He was so passionate for God that he said, the question isn't, is it right or wrong? I think we love to go there, but that's too easy. Will this cause my love for God to grow? Or will it cause my love for God to diminish? This psalmist is passionately crying out. Do we do that? I think we're quick to give up. Oops. It's all right. You're loved and accepted. (laughs) Amen. I think we give up. He cries out. Second, the second thing that he does is he analyzes his hope. Three times. Why do we add Psalm 42 to Psalm 43? Because three times he says the same thing. Why so downcast? Why so turmoil, uh, disturbed within me? And then he says, you notice, put your hope in God. Who's he talking to? Put your hope in God. I will praise him, my Savior and my God. What is he doing? He's analyzing his hope. He's asking a very good question. Why do I feel this way? And see, during this entire time, I think he's been listening to his emotions. Now he's starting to analyze his emotions, to not trust his emotions. And he's saying, what am I hoping in here? Here's the good thing about despair. Here's the good thing. One of the only good things. It helps you to discover where you've placed your hope. Because if something has failed me, I need to ask the question, Is it something I should be living for? And can it really hold the weight of my life? See, in moments of despair, we need to analyze our hope. What am I hoping in? Why am I so downcast? What am I trusting? And you know, in World War II, one of the challenges they had was taking those huge tanks through France and these little broken bridges, wood bridges, that could not support the weight of the tank. And when the tank would go over, the army would go over, the bridge would fall because it wasn't designed to support the weight of a tank. And there's many things in life that aren't designed to support the weight of your life. And they will fail. And in those moments of failing, we have to ask, what am I trusting in? What am I putting my hope in? What am I looking to, to be my strength? There's, he, analyzes, he analyzes his hope. And then Thirdly, he looks and sees the grace and the love of God. He meditates on the love of God. Again, verse 4, he says, I remember the procession. Verse 6, my soul is downcast, therefore I remember you. And then in verse 8, he, he, he pulls out, what is it that he's remembering about God? He says, By day the Lord commands his steadfast love. At night, listen, his song is with me, a prayer to the God of my life. By day, God, the Lord commands his steadfast love. What he's doing is he's meditating on the love of God. Now, he doesn't experience God. He doesn't sense God. He can't uh, draw into the presence of God, but what he's saying is, I'm not going to give up. I'm not going to give in. I'm going to analyze my hope, and then I'm going to build a new foundation. I'm going to focus on the love of God. And the love that he describes here is an important word in the Old Testament. It's called hesed. 
It's God's covenantal, not, not giving up love for us. It's the love that God expressed when he rescued the nation of Israel out of Egypt. And there he said to his people, you're my people, I will be your God, now trust me. And the word he gave them was this word, it's love, it's called hesed, it's covenantal kindness, covenantal love, it's his not giving up love on us. And so what does he do? In moments of despair, instead of just listening to his heart, because you've got those accusations playing, and they love to play on repeat over and over, it's never going to get better, That's never going to find that community again, you're never going to experience God in the same way. Instead of doing it, he's starting to shut it off. Instead of listening to his heart, listen, he's now speaking to his heart. And he's saying, shut up. Stop. Stop. I know what the world is saying. I don't even trust my conscience right now. I'm going to meditate on the love of God that while I was yet a sinner, Christ died for me. Listen, that's a good place to go. You don't have a lot of places to go. You can borrow mine. <laughs> Listen, Jason, and, and let me, sh- while I was yet a sinner, J- so in my worst moments in life, while I was a yet a sinner, Jesus was willing to die for me. So if in, in the worst moment in life, while I didn't belong to God, he was willing to die for me, would he give up on me while I belonged to him? Doesn't make sense. I don't know about you, but I tend to really listen to my kids when they're hurting. And in fact, when they messed up, I think when your kid is really messed up and you know they're at that place of kind of danger and in trouble, your ears are open. Your eyes are focused. And when they cry out, you want to be there. If, if while we were sinners, he loved us, why would he not also love us in the midst of our darkness? The darkness doesn't mean God doesn't love you. It could mean that he's disciplining you. And so he meditates. And the final thing is, is that he focuses himself on the character of God. He preaches to his heart. You'll notice throughout the passage, he says, my God, my God. He says, my salvation, my rock. He hasn't forgot the character of God. And he's not allowing his experience to redefine who God is. You know, one of the good things that we have today is the gospel. On the cross, Jesus said, and he's the only one who has said this, and said this in such a way that he did not receive anything from God. He said to God, I thirst. On the cross, he was being crucified, and he said, I thirst. He said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That on the cross, Jesus was God forsaken. He cried out for water, and what he received was wrath. He cried out for the Father, and what he received instead was our punishment for sin. And see, if Jesus did that for us on the cross, if he found himself at a place of desperation, what that means for us is if Jesus went through that for us, then in our place of desperation, God will respond. That God didn't respond to Jesus so that he would respond to us. Jesus is the only one who was abandoned, the only one who was cast off, the only one whose thirst was not satisfied. Why? So that we might as those who are thirsty, receive and experience the presence of God. Hey, fight through it. Don't give in. And find some people to support you in it. You know, the one thing he said, and it stands out to me, he lost the community of people who were pointing him to God. 
Hey, that's why we're here, guys. You know, I love the music. I love hanging out and experiencing life. But the reason we're here, honestly, is to help each other see and experience God. When we have that, see, then God is in the midst of us. Because even though I'm having a bad day, you may have a good one. And the next week, those things begin to change. And we together start to see and to savor God in a way that makes an impact in the world around us. You with me? Hey, it's great to have you guys here. Let me pray for us. Guys, would you come on up? Father, I thank you that um, I thank you that you've included passages like this. Lord, experiences like this, because I, I, I think we can be honest that there are times where we feel as if we're the only one that's going through what we feel right now. We're the only one that's at this pit of despair. We're the only one that doubts. We're the only one that struggles with addiction and temptation. And yet, Father, you've given us examples of, of people with a deep love for you. People who know their heart and knew how to, to bring you into their experience day by day, and yet they're describing moments of deep darkness and despair. And so, Father, in that, would you enable us not to give in, to allow the soul to cry out to you, to examine our hopes, and then to meditate, Father, on your character and your love. And guide us in that in a community that would not just give each other advice, but give each other Jesus. Father, guide us, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand as we respond in worship.